Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, It's True, Confession is Good for the Soul. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, March the 18th, 2012, the fourth Sunday in Lent. <clears throat> in the movie Crash, the Academy Awards 2005 Best Film, director Paul Haggis paints a dark picture of human nature. The movie begins with a car wreck that symbolizes the collisions between ordinary people that unleash our dark impulses that are normally suppressed by superficial so social bonds. In the movie, incidental encounters like vernacular slang, work, dress, music, marriage, and family, all these trigger outbursts of rage. We watch, for example, as a Persian shopkeeper, a Hispanic locksmith, two, two black hoodlums, a wealthy black film director, redneck white trash, a despicable suburban white couple, and an idealistic white rookie cop. All these project their insecurities and stereotypes onto each other. <coughs> Paranoia, not all of which is unjustified, bigotry and mutual misunderstanding darken their lives. But Haggis knows that people are not merely bad or only bad. In Crash, good people are bad. Bad people are good. And everyone is a mixture of the two. When he issues a simple traffic ticket, for example, senior police officer Ryan molests a woman in front of her husband. But then, in an ironic twist of fate, he later rescues her from a burning vehicle with self-sacrifice, professionalism, bravery, and genuine compassion. In other scenes, Ryan screams at a black woman clerk, but then back at home he tenderly cares for his dying father. Officer Ryan advises his rookie partner, You think you know who you are, but just wait a few years. <coughs> After 10 years of imprisonment, then 20 years of banishment to Europe and Vermont, Alexander Solzhenitsyn once famously concluded, When I lay there on rotting prison straw, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart, and through all human hearts. This line shifts. Inside us, it oscillates with the years. And even within hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained. And even in the best of all hearts, there remains an ununprooted small corner of evil. In John's Gospel for this week, Jesus describes this human struggle between forces of light and darkness, spiritual life and death, salvation and condemnation, belief in unbelief. He observes how we sometimes not only do evil, but even love our evil deeds. 
This doesn't mean that every person sinks to his moral lowest, but it does signal that no one is immune from the deeds of darkness. As Reinhold Niebuhr once observed, the Christian idea of sin is its most empirical of all doctrines. Similarly, in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul describes our human condition as a struggle between forces of life and death. Ignoring our own best interests, Paul describes how we gratify our selfish cravings, follow dark desires, and relish irrational thoughts. This includes, he says, quote-unquote, all of us. And this propensity to evil comes naturally to us, he says, quote, by nature, end quote. We read about the moral monsters in history books, Hitler, Stalin, Lenin, Mao, Paul Pot, Idi Amin, and so on. The daily newspaper chronicles our will to death and darkness, political corruption, violence as media entertainment, corporate greed, manipulation of desire by the marketers. And for the garden variety of struggles of sickness, death, divorce, drugs, and the like, just cast a compassionate glance toward your colleague or neighbor. Even our best and brightest describe this experience of corruption. After a lifetime pursuing virtue among monastic communities, in his conferences, John Cassian of the 5th century wondered why monks who had renounced great wealth exhibited possessiveness over a needle, a book, or a penknife. Or why a colleague flew into rage at a dull stylus. In a remarkable anticipation of modern theories of the subconscious, Cassian also admitted that there were, quote, many things that lie hidden in my conscience, which are known and manifest to, to God, even though they may be unknown and obscure to me. Cassian echoes his contemporary, St. Augustine, who once wondered about the mind that could control the body, but could not control itself. Theories abound about how or why humanity arrived at this tug-of-war between light and life, death and darkness. Take your choice, the genetic lottery, foolish choices, moral complacency, evolutionary struggle, the vagaries of fate, family of origin, bad luck, inexplicable mystery, or a primordial disobedience by our forebears that we inherited. I vote for all of the above. But even if satisfying explanations of the cause of our sickness remain elusive, the experiential descriptions of their effects by people like Paul Haggis, Solzhenitsyn, and John Cassian all ring true to me. In the play, Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar, Cassius insisted to Brutus, the fault is not in our stars, but in ourselves. In an article in the Times Literary Supplement from 2006, the British Jewish novelist and playwright, Gabriel Josipovici, argues that much to our frustration, the Bible leaves many questions unanswered, 
as what he calls pure narrative, the Bible favors brutal realism about our human condition over superficial consolation or theological explanation. It does so, writes Josip Povici, quote, because it recognizes that in the end, the only thing that can truly heal and console us is not the voice of consolation, but the voice of reality. That is the way the world is, it says, neither fair nor equitable. What are you going to do about it? How are you going to live so as to be contented and fulfilled? End quote. And so Lenten repentance precedes Easter resurrection. Divine consolation begins with human confession. We've, decide, we've devised many coping mechanisms to avoid confession and repentance. Denial, passive neglect, scapegoating, and rationalizations. The church, society, family, and even friends can pile on the shame and blame. And many contemporaries misconstrue confession before God as hatred of the self. <coughs> but instead of a dour, pessimistic, or even misanthropic act, I believe with Josie Povici that candid confession is liberating. Cassian, who had seen and heard every sort of pious pretense, insists that embracing, embracing our brokenness is healing when we do it with what he calls without any embarrassment, end quote. Because of God's character, no person needs to fear death, either spiritual death now or physical death later. No one needs to grope in darkness. Every person can enjoy not merely bios or length of days, but what Jesus calls eternal life and what the Hebrew Bible calls shalom, that is, a degree of genuine and authentic human wholeness. God, writes John in his gospel, did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Others might condemn you, but God does not. Paul agrees. After diagnosing our condition, he emphasizes that God showers us with great love, rich mercy, kindness, and incomparably great grace. That is, his unmerited favor. In being so favorably disposed to us, God longs to breathe life into the dead and to shine light into our darkness. Jesus compares this to a new birth. Just as every person has experienced an earthly birth of human origin, he invites us to experience a spiritual birth of divine origin. Having confessed the depth of our need, we have only to embrace the grace God offers us. Paul tells the Ephesians that we do this by faith alone, apart from any human merit. Luther compared faith to the beggar's empty hand that reaches out to receive a gift. Accepting that we are accepted, just as we are and right where we are, 
by God whose love far exceeds human failure, our Lenten sorrow anticipates Easter joy. For books this week, I review Why Niebuhr Now? The author is John Patrick Diggins, Chicago, University of Chicago Press, 2011, 136 pages. Reinhold Niebuhr, who lived from 1892 to 1971, was arguably the most important American theologian of his generation. His life spanned a remarkable period of American history that was grist for his fertile reflections on the meaning of history and the nature of humanity. Niebuhr came of age during the First World War, lived through the Depression, experienced the Second World War, the Holocaust, the Spanish Civil War, the Korean War, Vietnam, the landing on the moon, and then the so-called Cold War, he always defied easy categorization. His thought was imaginative enough to outrage conservatives and upset radicals. Many more, equally diverse, also appealed to his thought for the trajectories of their own ideas. John Patrick Diggins was a professor of history at City University of New York. This was the last book he wrote. He completed the manuscript before he died on, in January of 2009. Diggins lost his Catholic faith in the 1950s, but he retained a deep appreciation for Niebuhr's unique contributions to political discourse, especially as they found expression in Niebuhr's embrace of paradox and mystery. For Reinhold Niebuhr, humanity's problem is not ignorance, class, or property, but rather the corruption of human nature, or what the Bible calls sin. We're confronted with the limits of knowledge and the necessity of faith. We're stuck between the lust for power and the call of virtue, the quest for freedom and the forces of faith, life and death, and especially self-sacrifice and self-love. This moral ambiguity characterizes individuals and especially, <coughs> especially nations. Niebuhr believed that while individuals can be moral, nations and societies are inevitably immoral. This meant that there was an inevitable and tragic conflict between the one and the many. Niebuhr was deeply suspicious about national claims of virtue. He was a realist who questioned political and moral idealism. As Diggin puts it, Niebuhr addresses the realities of human affairs and demonstrates that until we consider certain Christian insights about human nature, we can never understand the nature of power in history. And that's why in the words of the title of the book, we need Niebuhr today. John Patrick Diggins, Why Niebuhr Now? For film this week, I review a movie from Iran. It's called A Separation from the year 2011. 
A Separation was nominated for Best Foreign Film in 2012. The first few minutes present what appears to be a simple, if painful, plot. Simin wants to leave Iran permanently because she doesn't want to raise their 11-year-old daughter, Terme, there. Her husband, Nader, refuses to join her since he must take care of his aging father, who has severe Alzheimer's. Samin then sues Nader for divorce and the right to take Terma with her. But when she loses this bid, she moves in with her mother in local situation in Tehran. Eleven-year-old Terme stays with her dad, who hires a woman to help with domestic chores and care for his father while he's at work. This rather drab domestic dispute then provokes multiple layers of complex conflicts about life in contemporary Tehran, gender roles, both secular and orthodox Islam, economic class conflict, politics, the legal system, government bureaucracy, and especially the ambiguities that surround personal honesty, even for decent people. This film will generate many conversations about which characters could have or should have made certain choices. It's in Farsi with English subtitles. From Iran, a movie called A Separation, nominated for Best Foreign Film. And finally, for the fourth Sunday in Lent, we've posted a poem called Crucifixion by Anna Akhmatova. Anna Akhmatova lived from 1889 to 1966. Crucifixion. Weep not for me, mother. In the grave, I have life. The choir of angels glorified the great hour. The heavens melted in flames. He said to his father, Why hast thou forsaken me? And to his mother, <coughs> Oh, weep not for me. Mary Magdalene smote her breast and wept. The disciple whom he loved turned to stone. But where the mother stood in silence, Nobody even dared look. Crucifixion by Anna Akhmatova. Thank you for joining us for the fourth Sunday in Lent, March 18th, 2012. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.